You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history. A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 48, Leaving Egypt. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in early 1799. Napoleon had launched an ugly, desperate invasion of Syria. The French advanced all the way up the Mediterranean coast to the modern-day Israel-Lebanon border, but the invasion bogged down before the walls of Acre, and Bonaparte was left with no choice but to order a retreat. A letter from Foreign Minister Talleyrand had arrived in Cairo in Napoleon's absence, confirming what everyone in the army surely suspected. Faced with another war for survival in Europe, the government could not spare any further resources for the support of the expedition. There would be no money, no supplies, no reinforcements, and no evacuation. Talleyrand suggested Bonaparte try to fight his way all the way through the Ottoman Empire, take the capital at Constantinople, and cross back into Europe via the Dardanelles Straits, then fight all the way through the Habsburg Empire back into France. A patently ridiculous idea. And so, as the army slunk back into Egypt, the writing was on the wall for the expedition. The invasion of Syria was an act of desperation, a long-shot attempt to change very unfavorable conditions. Now the army was too weak to undergo any further offensive operations. They had little choice but to sit back and wait, allowing those unfavorable conditions to develop under their own inertia. It would be premature to say that the defeat of the expedition and the loss of Egypt were now inevitable, but the French were now in the position of delaying the end as long as possible, hoping to be saved by some external intervention. This was the grim task facing Bonaparte when he returned to Cairo in early June. But the summer of 1799 would be his last season in the country. The idea of returning to France early, before his eastern ambitions were fully realized, had occurred to him early in the campaign, almost as soon as it began. But it had remained a tiny seed in the back of his mind. Now he was looking defeat in the face, and the idea began to germinate. Upon his return to Egypt, Napoleon did his best to spin the failure of the offensive into a victory. His proclamations called the invasion a success and he led the army through Cairo in a triumphal parade. But there was no hiding the facts. Syria remained unconquered, and roughly a third of the men who left Egypt five months earlier were dead or disabled. Any defeat was a serious blow to Napoleon's prestige as a ruler. He was a foreigner and an infidel, 
the aura of invincibility around his army was his only source of legitimacy, and so any critical discussion of the invasion was labeled sedition. The official policy of the French administration of Egypt was denial of easily observable reality, a bad sign for any government. Feeling their grip on the population weaken, the French cracked down even harder on suspected rebels. Rest of villages were occupied, some burned, and the tempo of executions in Cairo increased to nearly one a day. The failure in Syria was also a threat to Bonaparte's reputation back in France, which was built entirely on his military achievements. It is perhaps fortunate for Napoleon that the British and Ottomans soon gave him another chance to prove himself on the battlefield, and at a very fortuitous location. In mid-July, the long-awaited amphibious invasion of Lower Egypt finally began. The combined Anglo-Turkish fleet landed an army of around 15,000 Ottoman regulars at Abukir Bay, where Nelson had triumphed over the French fleet almost exactly a year ago. They were commanded by Mustafa Pasha, a seasoned Turkish commander about whom little is known. When the Allies drew up their plans to retake Egypt, this was intended as one half of a two-pronged attack, to be undertaken in concert with an offensive from Syria. However, the Ottoman army of Damascus had been so badly beaten at the Battle of Mount Tabor that it was still too weak and disorganized for any offensive action. Perhaps this is why Mustafa Pasha chose to proceed cautiously, or perhaps he had seen the way more aggressive commanders had been so quickly and easily defeated by the French. Whatever the case, the Ottomans decided against pressing the attack into Egypt, or even expanding their beachhead. Instead, they fortified their landing site at the town of Abukir and waited for Napoleon. Historians have criticized this approach. If Mustafa Pasha had been more proactive, he might have linked up with the renegade Mamluks, and the advance of his troops into the Egyptian heartland might have sparked another rebellion. However, after a year of Middle Eastern armies failing miserably against the Republicans, with no support and their backs to the sea, I find it quite understandable that the Ottoman force chose caution. But that doesn't mean it was a good idea. Bonaparte gathered his forces as quickly as possible and sped north to counter the threat. The main body of the Army of the Orient would cover 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, in just three days. Within two weeks of the Ottoman landing, Bonaparte had nearly 8,000 men massed around Abukir. The tables would be turned for the coming engagement. In previous battles of the campaign, the French had been on the defensive, with their infantry squares holding off successive charges from cavalry-based enemy armies. But at Abukir, Mustafa Pasha's forces were arranged in fortifications, clearly prepared for a defensive battle. They also didn't have any cavalry. Horses took up a lot of room on transport ships, and so none were included in the first wave of the invasion. Meanwhile, the Army of the Orient had finally acquired enough horses of their own to put a sizable number of cavalry in the field. Around 15% of Napoleon's strength was in a cavalry division commanded by his old friend, the flamboyant General Joachim Murat. By July 25th, Napoleon was still waiting on several thousand reinforcements, but he was so confident in victory that he decided not to wait, and ordered the assault. The French infantry stormed the Ottoman positions on the heights outside the town of Abukir. There was some hard fighting, but it should have been much harder. The Turkish troops were not used to this type of defensive warfare, and they kept leaving their entrenchments to counterattack, 
throwing away the advantage of their strong positions. By around noon, the Republicans had taken the heights. The surviving Ottoman defenders fled towards their camp around Abukir, or waded out into the sea, hoping to be rescued by their ships. With the enemy in disorder, General Murat saw an opportunity, and ordered his thousand cavalry to charge. The Republican horsemen rampaged through the disorganized fleeing Ottomans, cutting a bloody path towards the town of Abukir and the enemy camp. The Ottomans struggled to form a new defensive line to repel the charge, but it was too late. The French were already among them. Discipline broke down, and panic swept through the Turkish army. Each soldier thought only of saving himself. Murat led the charge from the front, and made a beeline for the biggest tent in the Ottoman camp, which he correctly surmised belonged to Mustafa Pasha. Murat burst in and was greeted with a pistol in the face. The aging Turkish commander was waiting for him. Mustafa Pasha fired, but Murat must have had a guardian angel because the shot passed relatively harmlessly through his cheek. Murat swung his saber, disarming the old man and taking several fingers in the process, then hauled him out of the tent as a prisoner. Around 3,000 Ottoman soldiers made it back to the town and locked themselves in the citadel, where they were temporarily safe from the fury of Murat's troopers. Those who weren't so lucky were cut down by sabers, or drowned after swimming out into the Mediterranean, hoping for a rescue that never came. Around 500 were captured. The men in the citadel held out, but were critically low on supplies and forced to surrender a week later. The French suffered just under a thousand killed or wounded, and the entire Ottoman army was destroyed. Murat's boldness had secured another lopsided victory. Murat's charge at Abukir was a seminal event, not only for his own career and for the expedition, but for the development of the French cavalry in general. Up until now, the backbone of the Republican armies had always been the artillery and the infantry, with the cavalry lagging far behind the other branches of service. They had been the hardest hit by sedition and desertion after the revolution. It had taken time to rebuild a large corps of men with the knowledge of tactics and horsemanship to be effective on the battlefield. It had also taken cavalry officers time to understand how they fit into this new type of army forged by the revolution. And so, during the War of the First Coalition, the Republican cavalry mostly played ancillary roles. Scouting, screening, harassment, and the pursuit of defeated enemies. The type of grand charge we saw at Abukir, at the height of the battle, in such large numbers, was almost unheard of. Cavalry officers like Murat were beginning to learn that, although it was risky, this tactic could be incredibly effective when used judiciously, and that the men they commanded had gained the skills and confidence to carry it out. Interestingly, some historians have suggested that these innovations were partially inspired by France's encounter with cavalry-focused Middle Eastern armies, like the Mamluks. So the mass cavalry charges that would soon become a signature tactic of Napoleon's forces may actually have their origins surprisingly far from Europe. Anyway, the Battle of Abukir was an impressive victory, but it had little effect on the overall strategic picture. All the French had really managed to do was kick the can down the road, delay the inevitable. Of course, that didn't stop Napoleon from trumpeting his success like it was the battle of the century. Quote, the name of Abu Kir was bitter to every Frenchman. The seventh of Thermidor has rendered it glorious. The victory gained by the army will accelerate its return to Europe. 
In a single operation, we have given the government the means of obliging England, in spite of her maritime triumphs, to sign a glorious peace for the arms of the Republic. End quote. This was completely fantastical, pure spin. The victory at Abukir was significant, but it didn't even come close to blotting out the disaster of the Battle of the Nile the previous year. Anyone with a clear picture of the strategic situation could see that the only way the Army of the Orient would be returning to France any time soon would be on parole, as part of a negotiated surrender. The British were nowhere close to giving in. However, Napoleon was desperate for some new military achievement to overshadow the failure of the Syria campaign, and so he seized upon the battle like a drowning man reaching for a life preserver. In the wake of the battle, the Royal Navy decided to rain on Napoleon's parade with a strategic leak of news from Europe. They delivered a packet of French newspapers to Alexandria that painted a disastrous picture of the War of the Second Coalition. We'll discuss these developments in more detail in future episodes, but for now, suffice it to say that the opening moves of the war had seen the French and their allies pushed back on all fronts. Napoleon received the newspapers on August 2nd, and spent the whole night locked in his office with Berthier, his faithful chief of staff, poring over the reports and deciding what to do next. They emerged the next morning with a plan. The British had probably hoped these headlines would convince Napoleon that despite his victory at Abukir, the wider war was lost, and his situation was hopeless, making surrender the only viable course of action. They underestimated his ego and sense of destiny. What Bonaparte gleaned from these reports was that France needed him, or perhaps that he had the perfect opportunity to play the savior, depending on how you look at it. After the victory at Abukir, he could leave the country on a high note, plausibly claim that having secured Egypt, he was returning to Europe to aid the Republic in its hour of need. Bonaparte had indulged all kinds of grand Orientalist fantasies about an empire in the Middle East but those dreams paled in comparison to the greatest ambition of all, ruling over France itself. The Republic's military setbacks presented a golden opportunity to bring that dream closer to fruition, but also a threat. An ex-Jacobin upstart like Napoleon could never hope to rise any higher if the Republic was defeated and the monarchy restored. And of course, the revolution was more than just a vehicle for Napoleon's ambitions. It was a cause he believed in, to which he devoted his entire adult life. Everything in Napoleon's character was crying out for a return to Europe. He had an uncanny ability to recognize a crucial moment and seize an opportunity. This was a crucial moment, in his life and in the history of the country. This was a rare opportunity, the type that might only come around once in a lifetime. Napoleon's mind was made up. He would leave Egypt and brave the British blockade to return to France. He knew how this might look, like he was abandoning his troops, saving himself and leaving the army which he had led into danger to suffer its fate. This was true to an extent. He certainly was leaving the expedition in the lurch, although he himself wouldn't be much safer on the Mediterranean dodging the Royal Navy. The real cowardly course of action would have been some kind of conditional surrender to the British giving up Egypt and agreeing that the men of the army would not take up arms against the coalition for some set period of time, in exchange for free passage back to France. This type of deal was very common in this era, and after the victory at Abukir, Bonaparte was probably in a good negotiating position to secure something along these lines. 
The delivery of those newspapers to Alexandria was a clear overture from the British for just such a deal. But Napoleon didn't want the blemish of a surrender on his record. The Army of the Orient was not beaten yet. There would be no negotiated truce as long as Bonaparte was in charge. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. To avoid any dissent in the ranks, Napoleon's impending departure was kept a closely guarded secret. Even many senior officers were unaware that there would soon be a change at the top. A few were aware, those who Bonaparte was planning on taking with him back to France. This group tended to be personally closer to Napoleon than those who would be staying. Bonaparte's personal staff and bodyguard would be accompanying him, of course, including his stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, and his brother Louis, and his faithful chief of staff, Alexandre Berthier, as would Generals Lannes and Marmont, who had been by his side since Toulon, and General Murat, the cavalry commander who had been by Napoleon's side since Vendémiaire. Again, this looks very bad for Bonaparte. He was going home with his friends, and much of the cream of the army's leadership, leaving the expedition to be led by those deemed expendable. However, he picked a very competent officer to succeed him as commander-in-chief, Jean-Baptiste Kleber, the architect-turned-general who had been instrumental during the invasion of Syria. And from a coldly utilitarian perspective, why should so many young, talented officers be sacrificed in this backwater theater of the war with almost no chance of success? Didn't France need these men for the wider struggle? After all, the Army of the Orient was roughly half the size it had been a year ago. There were quite a few redundant generals. Why not take the best of them back home, where they might help turn the tide in a desperate war? Napoleon's flight from Egypt violates a lot of commonly held ideas about duty and personal responsibility. The expedition was Napoleon's brainchild, undertaken in part for his own personal aggrandizement. It's quite natural to think he should have stayed and fought until the bitter end, like a sea captain going down with a sinking ship. He had gambled and lost. Now came the time to pay his karmic debt by suffering defeat. But remember who we're dealing with here. Napoleon was completely unsentimental when it came to these types of calculations. He was not the type to sacrifice himself in some grand, noble gesture, or to let his friends do so. The French had learned from prisoners taken at Aboukir that the Allied fleet was running low on food and ammunition, and would soon be returning to its base of operations on Cyprus for resupply. This would provide the ideal window for Napoleon's escape. That didn't leave very much time for preparations. Bonaparte returned to Cairo to get his affairs in order, spent a week in the city, and then headed north again. Officially, this was an inspection tour of the northern garrisons, but Bonaparte would never see Cairo again. He arranged to meet General Kleber on his way to Alexandria to inform him of his impending promotion to commander-in-chief, 
But Kleber missed the rendezvous, and there was no time to wait. Napoleon left him a note and traveled on. We can only imagine Kleber's reaction when he read the letter, feeling the responsibility for the entire expedition dropped on his shoulders without warning. Along with the letter, Bonaparte also left a terse, somewhat cryptic proclamation to the army. Quote, Soldiers, the news from Europe has caused me to decide to leave for France. I leave command of the army to General Kleber. You will receive more news from me soon. I cannot say more. I am grieved to leave you soldiers, to whom I am most attached, but it will not be so for long. The general I leave in charge has my confidence, and that of the government. Bonaparte. End quote. On August 22nd, 1799, Napoleon and his party boarded the frigate Muiron, which coincidentally was named after one of his own aides, who had sacrificed his life protecting Bonaparte at the Battle of Arcalais. They set sail, bound for France. Napoleon would never return to the Middle East. We'll leave Bonaparte's story there for now, but we've spent quite a lot of time in Egypt, nearly nine episodes, so I thought we'd linger a little while longer, tie up some loose ends, and try to get a little closure on this chapter of the show. At least a little more closure than Napoleon's abrupt departure afforded those who were left behind. You might assume the Army of the Orient felt betrayed and abandoned, but apparently this was not the case. One of the junior officers who was left behind in Egypt put it this way, quote, The news did not cause the sensation one might suppose. The army heard the news with pleasure. They hoped soon to be recalled to France through the mediation of their leader. End quote. In spite of everything, the men still believed in Bonaparte and saw his homecoming as a prelude to their own. Amazingly, in the very same memoir only a few paragraphs later, the same officer describes the army's impression of Napoleon's character. Quote, Bonaparte never did anything except in his own interest, and saw only the path leading to the advancement of his own fortune. End quote. I find the obvious tension between those two statements quite amazing. These men had sized Napoleon up, quite correctly, as ruthlessly ambitious. Over the preceding year, they'd seen his ambition lead thousands of their comrades to ruin. And yet, after all that had happened, they still believed Bonaparte's good graces would free them from this debacle, a debacle they all recognized had been caused by Napoleon's hubris. It's a remarkable bit of cognitive dissonance, which I think speaks to Napoleon's rare charisma. He was, in some ways, a cold and unpleasant character, but for some reason people couldn't help but like him and serve him. Several accounts of those who met Napoleon describe a kind of ineffable personal magnetism, that somehow he was more than the sum of his parts. Some of this probably came from the aura of the Napoleonic legend, but it does seem like something was at play here, still in the early stages of his career when that legend was in its infancy. In the end, the soldier's faith in Bonaparte would prove misplaced, yet again. It would be two years before the army saw home again, and thousands more would die before that day came. But the troops were not the only people Napoleon left in the East. There was certainly no closure for Pauline Forès, Napoleon's mistress, who remained in Cairo. She had probably thought there was a decent chance she'd end up married to Napoleon, but in the end, she didn't even get a farewell. She had to learn of his escape secondhand, like everyone else. Apparently, when Napoleon made up his mind to return to France, he also decided to return to his marriage. 
This left Pauline in a difficult position, marooned in a faraway country, divorced from her husband, with very little means of support. According to some sources, she rectified the situation by becoming the mistress of General Kleber, who took Napoleon's place in the Romantic realm as well as at the head of the expedition. She was finally able to slip out of Egypt and return to France in 1800. She never saw Napoleon again, although he did set her up with a good marriage to a wealthy widower in the French diplomatic service, which enabled her to carry on the type of active, high-society social life to which she had become accustomed. Now known as Pauline de Ranchou, she was a fixture on the Paris salon scene, where she had a reputation as a bit of a bohemian. She was outspoken, opinionated, and often unbound by social convention. She smoked in public, which was almost unheard of for a woman of her class in this era. She had an artistic nature and was particularly drawn to painting, although she was only a middling talent and never achieved serious recognition. She also wrote three novels— competently written, but not terribly remarkable or successful. After the Napoleonic Wars and the death of her husband, she went into business, another rarity for a woman of this era. She sold furniture, then graduated to manufacturing it. This enterprise brought her to Brazil, where she became one of the early pioneers of the tropical hardwood trade, which remains a mainstay of luxury furniture and flooring even today. Brazil made her fantastically rich, and in the 1830s, she returned to France to retire to the countryside of the Loire Valley and build her art collection. Pauline de Ranchou, formerly Fouresse, died in 1869, three days after her 91st birthday. I wanted to tell her story because I find Pauline Fouresse interesting, and because she provides us an interesting counterfactual. What if Napoleon had ended up married to someone a little more headstrong and independent? Someone a little more like him? But despite everything that had happened, Josephine still had too great a hold on him. Pauline Forest's new lover, General Kleber, was a solid choice to take over the expedition, a competent leader who was respected by officers and men alike. According to the memoirs of a captain on the expedition, quote, We were not displeased to see command pass into General Kleber's hands. The reputation for bravery which he had won in the Army of the Rhine the prudence he had always shown, above all at Acre, his impartial sense of justice, and his pleasant and affable manner soon won the army's confidence. Kleber never considered himself. His thoughts were all for the comfort and relief of the soldier. He had no personal interest in keeping us in a country where, his wisdom told him, we could never put down roots. End quote. Sure enough, Kleber did pursue the diplomatic path, opening negotiations with the Allies and with the Mamluk renegades. He must have been good at it because he somehow convinced Murad Bey, the former Mamluk ruler of Egypt, to switch sides and support the French. This diplomatic success might have had a bigger impact on the expedition than any military victory could have, but in another stroke of bad luck for the French, Murad Bey caught the plague and died shortly after the agreement was reached. Negotiations with the Allies were a slower, more delicate process. Technically, Kleber was negotiating with the Ottomans, but the talks were overseen by a British representative. It was the British-led blockade, not the Turkish armies, that were putting so much pressure on the French. But Egypt was legally Ottoman territory, and so they led the negotiations. The stalemate between Kleber and his negotiating partners matched the wider strategic stalemate between France and Britain. 
the expedition was undefeated on land, but the Royal Navy maintained unchallenged control over the sea. Finally, in January of 1800, the two sides came to an understanding, the so-called Convention of El Arish. Kleber agreed to surrender Egypt back to the Ottomans. In return, the Army of the Orient would receive safe passage back to France, and the Ottoman Sultan would pay for their food and upkeep as long as they remained in the East. Both sides agreed to a truce until the evacuation was completed. The British were not happy with this arrangement. The Ottomans were eager to regain control of Egypt as quickly as possible, and were willing to agree to almost anything to that end. But their British allies didn't particularly care about Egypt. They were concerned with the wider war. They had a French army on the ropes in Egypt, and wanted to hurt them. The British representative refused to sign, but he lacked the authority to do anything more than protest. That changed in February, when new orders arrived from London, forbidding Royal Navy officers from agreeing to any diplomatic proposal from Kleber, short of unconditional surrender. Importantly, these orders were dated before the agreement had been signed. And so, the Royal Navy informed the French and Ottomans that they did not consider themselves bound by the Convention of El Arish. Without British cooperation, there was no way the Army of the Orient could be evacuated. The deal was dead. Understandably, the French saw this as a dishonorable act. Kleber responded by attacking a combined Turkish Mamluk army at Heliopolis, not far from Cairo. The French were outnumbered nearly six to one, but once again pulled off a crushing victory. There was still some fight left in the Army of the Orient. Cairo rose up in rebellion once again, and once again the insurgents were crushed. Kleber was proving just as hard to beat as Napoleon, but in the wake of the uprising, he was assassinated by a young student. The assassin was tortured and executed. His skull was sent back to Paris for study, and it would become one of the first case studies in the emerging pseudoscience of phrenology. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. With Kleber's death, command of the army fell to General Menu, a former aristocrat. Menu was nowhere near as capable as Napoleon or Kleber, but he did have one significant advantage over his predecessors. By 1800, the man who was once known as Baron Jacques-François de Menu went by the name Abdallah Menu. He had met an Egyptian woman and converted to Islam to marry her. Perhaps a year earlier, having a Muslim at the head of the expedition could have made a real difference, but by now it was far too late for the Egyptian population to see the French as anything other than an unwanted, burdensome foreign presence. 
Once hostilities recommenced, it was once again a matter of time before the Army of the Orient ran out of luck and was finally strangled into submission. And with a mediocre commander at the helm, that eventuality was closer than ever. In the spring of 1801, an Anglo-Ottoman army fought its way to Cairo and placed the city under siege. The garrison held out for a month before surrendering in early June. The remnants of the Army of the Orient fell back north to make their last stand at Alexandria. Roughly 13,000 Frenchmen clustered in and around the city of Alexander, all that remained of over 30,000 soldiers and sailors who'd left France three years before. The port and surrounding area had been well fortified since Napoleon's men stormed the crumbling walls in 1798. Alexandria presented a formidable challenge for the Allies. However, the Army of the Orient was in poor shape. As you might expect under the circumstances, morale had plummeted to the point where there was a real threat of mutiny, supplies were low, and the strategic situation was bleak. Still, the French fought on tenaciously for three weeks before Manu finally asked for terms. The two sides reached an agreement known as the Capitulation of Alexandria. It is a cruel irony that the terms were quite similar to those of the Convention of El Arish, which the British had abrogated the previous year. The soldiers and sailors of both sides had spent a year fighting and dying in punishing conditions, far from home, all for nothing. This time, the Royal Navy stuck to their word, and the remains of the Army of the Orient were evacuated back to France. The British also confiscated the famous Rosetta Stone, which a generation later would provide the key to translating ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Only about one in three of the men who had left Toulon with Napoleon in 1798 returned home unscathed. The Republic's adventure in Egypt was finally, mercifully over. So, what are we supposed to make of all this? We've been talking about Egypt for nine episodes now. How can we sum it up? What impact did this experience have on Napoleon personally, and on the wider world? For Napoleon, it's an elusive question. When we finished the first Italian campaign, I could point to a lot of things he learned during that period. Strategy, tactics, politics, diplomacy, even interpersonal skills. Nothing quite so obvious jumps out from the Egyptian campaign. The most visible influence of the expedition on Napoleon was a new companion, Rustam Raza, an imposing Mamluk of Armenian origin who had been given to Bonaparte as a personal gift by an Egyptian notable. Obviously, this system of Mamluk military slavery didn't really translate over to the French army, but Napoleon liked the idea of having such a person on his staff. He was impressed by the Mamluk's fighting ability and by their loyalty to their patrons and so he kept Rustam on as his personal orderly. This was a position that combined the duties of a valet or personal manservant and bodyguard, sometimes referred to as a batman in the British military. Over the course of his life, nobody would spend more time close to Bonaparte than Rustam Raza. He was always by Napoleon's side, whether in Paris or out on campaign. He slept on a cot in front of the door of his master's bedroom, so he could be close at hand if Napoleon needed something, and to deter potential assassins. Bonaparte insisted Rustam continue to dress in Middle Eastern clothing. Clearly, he enjoyed the idea of having an exotic reminder of the East by his side. If you look closely at paintings of Bonaparte, you can often find a seemingly incongruous figure in a turban somewhere in the background. 
That's Rustam, like a Napoleonic Where's Waldo. Before his coronation in 1804, Napoleon spent 8,000 francs on fancy robes and turbans for him, the equivalent of roughly 48,000 U.S. dollars today. Rustam Raza is a fascinating character. His status as an outsider with constant close proximity to Napoleon gave him a unique perspective. He may get his own episode in the future. Rustam was not the only Mamluk in Napoleon's service. After his rise to power, he organized a squadron of Mamluk cavalry as part of his personal guard. The geopolitical twists and turns of the Napoleonic Wars made it difficult to keep recruiting from the Middle East, and so after a few years, this unit was mostly composed of Europeans wearing turbans and carrying scimitars. But this Mamluk unit was a part of Napoleon's personal guard all the way up until Waterloo. If we look deeper at Napoleon's character, it's hard to find any legacy of the Egyptian campaign. It's sometimes suggested his experiences in the East taught Napoleon to behave like a tyrant. But there are mountains of evidence that he was already well-schooled in this practice before he ever left Europe. Think of how he treated those Catholic insurgents during the First Italian Campaign, or the Parisian royalists on 13 Vendémiaire. We can go all the way back to his time on Corsica and look at his draconian behavior during the Easter riots in Ajaccio. I think this whole line of reasoning stems from Orientalist stereotypes of so-called Eastern despotism. As we saw over and over again over the last few episodes, Europeans didn't need to take lessons from anyone when it came to severity. I don't think there was anything special about the country that brought out Napoleon's despotic side other than the fact that it was much harder to conquer and govern than Italy. So, if it wasn't tyranny, what did Napoleon learn in Egypt? It's hard to say. He didn't talk about the expedition very often. When he did, it was typically in private, and sometimes quite dismissive. He had undertaken the expedition hoping to build his own legend, follow in the footsteps of his heroes, and change the geopolitical order. None of these had really panned out. When Napoleon came to power, it was mostly thanks to political developments back in France, and on the strength of his record in Italy. Egypt came to be perceived as an exotic interlude to a story that mostly took place in Europe. A few incidents from the expedition, true and otherwise, did find their way into the canon of Napoleonic legend. Trouncing the Mamluks in the shadow of the pyramids, walking in Caesar's footsteps and making new archaeological discoveries and touching his men's plague sores like a medieval monarch. But Bonaparte seems to have been too embarrassed by the overall failure of the expedition to turn it into a real centerpiece of his public image. And so, with the benefit of hindsight, Egypt sometimes looks like a bit of a sideshow, an intriguing subplot that kept Napoleon occupied while the political situation back home developed enough for him to continue his rise to power back in France. The campaign does give us a better sense of the scale of Napoleon's ambitions, grandiose dreams which he'd only discussed in letters or hinted at during his time as de facto ruler of northern Italy, were pursued quite openly in Egypt. Almost anyone would have been marked by the experience of attempting such a grand enterprise, striving for it against tremendous odds, and finally leaving it doomed to failure. But Napoleon seems to have shrugged it off without a second thought. He was too single-minded to allow himself to be bogged down in reflection or self-recrimination. There was a mystique around the expedition, despite the fact that it ultimately failed. The fact that French soldiers had conquered this exotic land, if only briefly, 
and survived to tell the tale was enough to capture imaginations. Marcelin Marbeau was the son of a Republican general. He was a teenager when a group of his father's friends, recently returned from Egypt, paid a visit to the family home. He was awestruck by these men. Quote, I never tired of studying their martial air, their faces bronzed by the eastern sun, their strange costumes, and their Turkish sabers. I listened attentively to their tales of the campaigns in Egypt and the battles fought there. I enjoyed the repetition of the celebrated names, the pyramids, the Nile, Cairo, Alexandria, Acre, and so forth. End quote. From that glowing description, you'd never guess that these men had scurried home early from a hellish, doomed campaign. That's how many supporters of Napoleon chose to remember the campaign, as a romantic adventure rather than a hell of thirst, plague, and blood. When looking for legacies of the campaign, it's much more fruitful to look beyond the figure of Napoleon. I've already mentioned one, the change in French cavalry tactics which would eventually spread to other European armies, and may have been influenced by the daring heavy cavalry charges of the Mamluks. In previous episodes, we've discussed another, Orientalism, the 19th century European fascination with the East, which was jump-started by romantic accounts of the campaign. This morbid fascination played out in the geopolitical realm as well. The 19th century was the era of so-called New Imperialism, in which the European powers, later joined by the United States and Japan, jockeyed for influence in Africa and Asia. Just like Napoleon, these new imperialists saw themselves as a civilizing influence, bringing enlightened European attitudes and institutions to dark corners of the world that badly needed them. They too envisioned a scholarly aspect to their mission, bringing scientists, archaeologists, and engineers, along with soldiers, bureaucrats, and merchants, just as Napoleon had. Larger economic and social forces probably ensured the 19th century would be an era of imperialism, regardless of what Napoleon did in Egypt. But the expedition provided a perfect example for all that followed. Napoleon was personally ambivalent about the expedition, but his regime played a huge role in preserving and promoting its legacy. Starting in 1809, the French government began releasing an anthology of books called Description of Egypt, or the Collection of Observations and Researches which were made in Egypt during the expedition of the French army, usually referred to only by its mercifully shorter title, Description of Egypt. As the name suggests, the series was intended to be a compilation of everything the expedition had learned in Egypt, scientific, archaeological, historical, anthropological, and everything in between. They used the notes and writings of the savants, memoirs, and newspaper accounts. It was a massive undertaking. Over 2,000 people were involved in its production. It ultimately spanned 23 volumes. I'll be talking more about this in a future episode, so I don't want to travel too far down this road. But you can't talk about the legacy of the expedition without mentioning these books. Despite all of Paris's grand plans of shifting the balance of international commerce, shattering British hegemony over the seas, and building a new French empire in the Middle East, you could make an argument these books were the most important direct consequence of the invasion. So we're left with a bit of an unsatisfying ending to this story. However hard people like me might try to give everything a nice narrative arc, the truth is often too sloppy for a clean beginning, middle, and end. Of course, when we talk about the expedition as having a nebulous, hard-to-quantify legacy, it's important to remember that we're talking about the perspective of Napoleon and the French, 
From the Middle Eastern perspective, the invasion was a massive, world-changing event. On the most obvious level, toppling the regime that had ruled Egypt since the Middle Ages and trying to impose French-style government and waging bloody military campaigns through the region was massively disruptive. But there was also a deeper philosophical legacy to the invasion, which would have a much more profound impact. For the Egyptians and Ottomans, Napoleon's arrival represented the beginning of an entirely new epoch of history. The fact that a small, poorly supplied Western army was able to dominate one of the richest parts of the region for several years and easily destroy successive, much larger Middle Eastern armies caused an existential shock. If Napoleon could run rings around local militaries and secure Egypt with 25,000 men, no navy, and no support from home, what might happen if another Western power showed up with a 100,000 men, control of the seas, and the full economic and bureaucratic force of a modern European state? For most of history, the Arab and later Turkish states had enjoyed superiority over those in the West. Again, speaking generally, they tended to be better organized, more effectively governed, and have stronger armies. After Napoleon, Middle Easterners could no longer ignore the fact that they had lost that edge. The problem of explaining and reversing that relative decline became central to the region's politics and high culture, and would remain so for generations, arguably right up until the present day. But we'll address that phenomenon further in the future. The expedition to Egypt was a dubious gamble from the very beginning. Napoleon and those who survived it were very lucky that it petered out into a generous surrender, rather than exploding spectacularly into a real disaster. Napoleon succeeded beyond his wildest dreams at dodging any blame for the failures of the expedition. By the end of 1799, he would finally achieve his greatest ambition, and rise to political power in France. But that remarkable story will have to wait for future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. 